Well, in our passage, the scene that we watched last week, that we were observing last week, continues now to unravel. If you remember, Jesus had just cast a demon out of a man. That exorcism, it was so impressive that the religious leaders or his religious opponents, they didn't attempt to deny the supernatural element of the exorcism. They didn't attempt to deny that at all. Instead, they claimed that Jesus had achieved this feat by the power of Satan. And, And of course, we saw last week that is a charge that Jesus effectively and efficiently dismantled. But there remains others who demand further authentication. In fact, in verse 16, it tells us that they were demanding Jesus provide them a sign from heaven. This, it is said, was to test him. (laughs) It is to demand Jesus' response so that people will believe. They need to see something to believe. Um, It's to these people that Jesus responds today in our passage, a people who refuse to believe in Christ unless his teaching is validated by some outstanding and unexplainable miracle. A A sign from heaven. That suggests they wanted to see something something, uh, that defies the observable laws of nature. A cosmological sign, something visible for them to see. And it's at this point in verse 29 when we notice something. Now the crowds are what? They're increasing, right? The crowds are increasing. The people had just witnessed an exorcism. Now there's anticipation that this crowd might actually get to see something visibly supernatural. There's great anticipation and excitement. Folks, will that draw a crowd on Sunday morning? Will the masses increase if there seems like there's a likelihood that they're going to get to see something unexplainable? Something amazing? Of course, of course, people love to see things. It's the same reason that circuses exist, folks. People love to witness something they've never seen before. It's a reason they pay for the lobster boy to see him and and the bearded lady and to see a man get shot in the stomach with a cannonball. All of those things. Stunts are a sure method of drawing a crowd. Even some churches will get into the act. Uh, Chris Nanini shared with me a video this past week of a church. Might need to put that in quotes. I don't know. Just a short video of a man dancing on the pulpit. While at the same time there are women running around the whole sanctuary in circles to loud music. Annoying loud music, by the way. There was certainly a scene going on there. Literally dancing atop the pulpit. Hmm. Folks, in, in reality... There are a lot of manufactured theatrics today in religious circles. A brief trip to YouTube will yield just a plethora of spectacles that can be seen in all types of churches today. There are imaginary healings, light shows, choreographed dance videos, fictitious exorcisms, pretty much anything you want you can find it today. 
And, and, and all do it for the same reason. They, they realize if they promote it adequately, adequately, they do a good job of promoting it, they can draw an increasing crowd if they give something to see. Sometimes the effect, it's almost like the WWF, really. Everyone knows it's fake, but it's kind of fun to watch, and sometimes the actors are, are really quite good, so people go to it. And, and what do these people have, then, in common with our people in verse 29? They imply, they, they imply they can't believe, they just, they just can't bring themselves to believe unless there's something that they can see. They've got to be offered something to see. And actually, that's a bit disingenuous in reality, because even if they did see, they still would not become convinced or believe. They, they just think that they would believe if they just had something to see. They, they rationalize to one another, you know, if we only see something amazing enough, supernatural enough, then we'll believe. Then and only then will believe. But folks, that's not how faith works. Faith based on visible sight was a misunderstanding of that rich man from our scripture reading earlier in Luke 16. Having died and now suffering in Hades, agony in Hades, he pleads with Father Abraham, you'll send back Lazarus. I've got five brothers. Send back Lazarus. If they see Lazarus resurrected, then they will repent of their sins, and then they'll believe. Abraham corrected him by clarifying, that's not how it works. Instead, Abraham insisted, let them hear Moses and the prophets. And then in Luke 16, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And that would be the supreme miracle when you really think about it. Someone rising from the dead. Someone who is clearly dead, who has been buried, and now they're no longer dead. Most of us have observed dead bodies at funerals at one time or another. I mean, there, there is a, a distinctiveness to a dead body. There really is. You look in the casket. I know when I looked at my father's body when he passed, look in the casket and he, he's not there. He's evidently not there. There's just a body there, a lifeless body. Of course, the morticians do their best to dress them up and, and make them look lifelike. But death is re- irrefutably final. It's final. So if someone saw a dead person come back and they're still unable to repent and believe, Scripture suggests there exists no miracle that could ever cause you to believe. You know, we Christians have not come to faith by witnessing miracles or through witnessing miracles, signs or wonders, etc. Abraham was absolutely correct when he said, it's only through receiving Moses and the prophets. That is, heeding Scripture. It's only through observing and heeding Scripture that we exercise faith. Scripture is the only instrument the Holy Spirit uses to regenerate the heart. Ephesians 1 verse 13, In Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him 
with the Holy Spirit of promise. Romans 10.17 So faith comes by hearing, right? And hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So if anyone would suggest that they would believe in Jesus, if we just simply show them something, something miraculous, they're either lying or they're self-deceived. They don't know how you come to faith. We don't need to see Lazarus, nor Jesus raised from the dead, in order to believe. For the ones who did see Jesus, or the persons that he also resurrected, for them, that's fine. That's fine. But seeing that was only incidental to saving faith. Accordingly, not all who witnessed those resurrections believed. Many who witnessed the miracles, the resurrections, did not believe. It's only those who received Jesus' words who believed. That was the cause. The word is the cause. While seeing a miracle was only incidental to faith. In one of the finest and firmest rebukes in Scripture, Jesus severely reprimands doubting Thomas, who demanded to see That's in John 20. And Jesus told him, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the presence of a sign or a miracle has never been the necessary contributing factor to faith. But it does draw a crowd. While the preaching of the Word of God, which the Holy Spirit actually does use, the mechanism, the instrument that the Holy Spirit does use to call people to repentance, not usually as big a crowds. And in our passage, the crowds were increasing not to hear Jesus, not to hear Him teach, not to hear Him preach, but they're hoping that they'd see something. They hoped that they would see a sign. So Jesus responds to them by saying there there isn't going to be any sign. Except one. It's a sign of Jonah. And when we see that sign of Jonah there, it's weighty, it's, it's very significant that Luke doesn't link at all the three days and three nights Jonah spent in the belly of the fish to this sign. Luke doesn't even bring that up. Christians sometimes think, because often we are taught, that the event of Jonah being vomited out of the fish was the miraculous sign of Jonah to the Ninevites. That that was actually the miracle. But as we discovered while studying the book of Jonah, we studied through that about two years ago, the city of Nineveh never saw Jonah coughed out of the fish. Jonah was forced to walk some four or five hundred miles after being vomited out of the fish in order to get to Nineveh, folks. During all those weeks of walking, maybe he caught a ride somewhere. We aren't exactly sure how he made the travel. But surely Jonah stopped at creeks along the way and villages to eat and to wash and, and to make his way along. So the fanciful, fanciful notion that Jonah's skin must have been bleached white from the fish's stomach acid, or that somehow seaweed must have still been hanging from his hair uh, in order for Nineveh to believe... That's fanciful, folks. It's, it supposes that Nineveh had to see something. 
They had to visibly see something supernatural which prompted them to repent and then believe. But that goes directly against Jesus' own rationale in this passage. No, the sign of Jonah that Jesus is referencing is how Nineveh repented at the preaching of God's word and believed when Jonah announced judgment was coming in 40 days. The sign of Jonah is that Nineveh, notably Gentiles, by the way, the sign of Nineveh, is, or sign of Jonah is that Nineveh repented and believed Jonah's preaching of God's word without demanding any kind of sign. Folks, that's a miracle. That people would actually repent and believe God's word and be regenerated by the Holy Spirit in faith without having to see anything? That's a miracle. That's a divine miracle. And responding in faith to the proclamation of God's word is the sign of Jonah. Nineveh did what Israel was supposed to do. Nineveh heeded the preaching. Israel was supposed to be heeding the preaching. Israel was unwilling to. Therefore, verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Why? Jesus says why. Because they, meaning Nineveh, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What prompted repentance was the preaching of Jonah, says Jesus. Not any kind of miraculous sign that they saw. Just in case any Israelite listening to Jesus was maybe confused about Nineveh and this sign, responding to God's word, Jesus provides a second example of someone else who responded to God's word. She is the queen of Sheba, or queen of the south. Um... She came to hear Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. In verse 31 there, uh, or no, in verse 31 in Luke 11, the queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. See, the queen of Sheba, she didn't travel to Israel. She didn't visit Israel so as to demand signs from heaven. 1 Kings 10.1 says she came to test Solomon with difficult, difficult questions. And when she, when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered, it says, all of her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. Of course, we know that King Solomon wrote wrote the largest part of Proverbs and much of the other wisdom literature, the queen came to hear and then respond. She came to hear the word of God through Solomon, then she, came to respond, then she responded to the word of God, the wisdom of God spoken through not Jonah this time, but through Solomon. It, it is true. If you look into 1 Kings, um, she was amazed when she saw the prosperity of Solomon. She was very, very impressed and amazed by that. But prosperity isn't a heavenly sign. Bill Gates isn't assigned to our generation. According to his website, he doesn't even believe in Christ. He's just rich. They don't preach the gospel when they go around the world. What kind of sign is that? Prosperity isn't a sign. There's plenty 
of unbelievers, plenty of pagans, who are filthy rich. That's not the sign. In her own words, the Queen of Sheba, that is, she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. That's what she came to Israel for, the words and the wisdom of the king. Folks, what Jesus is emphasizing here to these crowds is that neither the Ninevites nor the Queen of Sheba ever demanded a sign, but instead responded to the word of God. The word of God. And by the way, Jesus says, they will condemn you, this generation. So the Ninevites and the Queen, for us, they're elevated as examples that we should imitate, that we should emulate, Uh, Meanwhile, it's a very different kind of generation that seeks for a sign. What's further embarrassing is how the Ninevites benefited from the preaching of Jonah. And the Queen of the South benefited from the wisdom of Solomon. But consider what Israel had by comparison. Think about that just for a moment. This generation had seen with their eyes the Holy Son of God. They still didn't believe. Jesus is declaring that a greater prophet than Jonah had come, a king greater even than that of Solomon stood right before them. And if the crowds were truly hoping to see a sign from heaven... The light of the world had arrived in the person and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He had previously told the Jews, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. And it's impossible for us in our feeble and finite minds to perceive what it must have been like for the the eternal Son of God to empty Himself, to set to set himself, all of his privileges aside, to take the form of a bondservant, be humbly and humbly permit himself to be fashioned by the Holy Spirit into the likeness of a man, as the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary, and then to come down from heaven, only to see his own people resist him and say, no, no. You need to show us a sign from heaven. Without a doubt, the preaching of Jonah and Solomon, that that shined pretty brightly in its day. Nobody ever had taught or spoken like Jesus Christ. In their own words, officers sent to arrest Jesus dared not even lay hands on him, saying in their own defense, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. John 7, 46. Jesus is the true light. He'd been publicly teaching and preaching and ministering all this time, even though the nation resisted him because, verse 33, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under, or puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. Jesus being the true light, the light of the world. He couldn't do anything except shine. That's all he could do is he's the light. That, that, that's the nature of light. That's what it does. It shines. 
Jesus shined. He shined so that people could enter the kingdom of God through his light. The only entrance to the kingdom is illumined by Jesus. If you can't see him and you can't see the light that he shines, it doesn't matter what else you see. You can't see the entrance to the kingdom. Because in verse 34, the the eye, it's a lamp to your body. The eye is a lamp to the body. Light, Light enters through the eye. Just a couple weeks ago, we learned how God figuratively supplies us with eyes to see and with ears to hear in order to comprehend spiritual truth so that we can understand. Do you remember that? As Jesus asked his disciples when they were in the boat, he asked them, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you still not hear? Do you not understand? And as Jesus began speaking in parables as a form of judgment upon Israel, he explained to his own disciples... He said, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them, says Jesus. And then he told his disciples, but blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. That's in Matthew chapter 13. The language is, of course, it's all symbolic. We talked about that recently. It's symbolic of spiritual understanding, eyes to see and ears to hear. The light of God's word enters through the good eyes, that is the the perceiving eyes, eyes that can see, and as a result, the whole body is illumined and full of light. That means you're regenerated by the light. The light of Christ comes in through good eyes and you're regenerated. A bad eye, verse 34, it doesn't transmit the light. No light gets in, so the whole body remains dark, and the soul remains dark. So it isn't really that complicated, this passage. In verse 34 it says, the eye is a lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, that means when you have good eyes, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. An eye that perceives and transmits the light of Jesus causes the whole body to be illumined, to be full of light. Verse 36, If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. So you're either fully illumined by the light of Jesus or entirely dark. Corresponding to whether or not the light enters through the eye and diffuses the light. Um, there are no partly saved or partially saved people out there, folks. Either you receive the light of Jesus and you're fully illumined, or your eyes remained closed to him and you're left in the dark. Here's a summary of what I think Jesus is telling this now increasing throng of people who are seeking a sign. Jesus is telling them your eyes don't need to see a miracle. They need to see me. 
I am the light. You know, you know, there's some truth to that old song that goes, open your eyes, open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. To reach out and touch Him and say that we love Him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus, right? The touching song, it's right in the fact that we need eyes to see. God opens our eyes in granting us faith. We don't even know that until it's happened, folks. In John 9, verse 1, Jesus passed by a man blind from birth as he had just said to his disciples, I am the light of the world. Interesting, next thing he does is he opens a blind man's eyes. And Jesus applied clay spittle to the man's eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when the man returned, he could see. The crowd's astonished. The man was then called before the Pharisees and asked how his eyes were open. The man said, He applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. The Jews, not believing him, called in the man's parents to ask whether or not he was truly born blind. Of course, there's a long interrogation that follows. You remember that. Um, Finally, the man born blind declares, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. So what do the Pharisees do? They throw the man out. They put him out. And then finding him, Jesus said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that those who do not see may see. You know, folks, there's, there's a whole lot of hubbub today about signs and wonders and miracles. The only thing that you need to see is Jesus. That's it. And, and when you come to see Christ, not visibly through a miraculous vision or premonition or a sign or a wonder, but through the Word of God as the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and your heart through the light of God's Word, your whole body is illumined. Psalm 18, verse 28 says, You light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. 2 Peter 1.19 says, referring to the Bible, So we have the prophetic word. That's referring to Scripture. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts question is can you see Jesus can you see Jesus because the preaching of God's word and all his the church is supplied to provide to you is the word of God that's all we're given to share with you And the scriptures are more than enough. Scores of people here amongst us, myself included, have come to faith without ever seeing anything. 
didn't have to see anything. And if you remain spiritually blind and dark to the writings of Moses and the prophets, the Gospels and the other scriptures, the Bible says neither would you believe even if someone rose from the dead. Even if someone showed you a sign from heaven, you still would not believe. So Jesus didn't capitulate to the demand for a sign. His church is not in the business of promoting uh, a whole bunch of spectacles and signs because the Holy Spirit does not need them nor does He use them to prompt us to faith. Though the apostles witnessed Jesus' miracles, John saw Him crucified for our sins, all later saw Him resurrected from the dead, Jesus says, you don't, you don't even need to see that. We see Christ through what we have heard through their eyewitnesses as, as eyewitnesses as written down in the testimony of God's Word. And as we close, it's just, it's just necessary to be a little, bit of blunt, a little bit blunt. Because signs are one of the biggest cons of our day. Fabrications of miracles and signs and wonders, they're pandemic in the church. Everyone wants to be an apostle. Concocted signs, scripted exorcism, stage healings, fake tongues, claims of prophecy, visions, they all make for great book deals. All claiming to have signs from God, but it seems everybody demands something to see. But folks, seeing is not faith. Seeing is not faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's faith. Conviction of things not seen. And for by it the men of old gained approval. Why would we want to see anything when Jesus declared, Blessed is he who does not see and yet has believed? Why would I demand signs from heaven when Scripture says that faith comes through hearing? It doesn't come through signs. You know, the queen of of Sheba, the queen of the south, she could have hired magicians in her own country. She had plenty of superstition back home, but she was willing to travel all the way to Israel just to hear the word of God. Nineveh had magical arts. They had court jesters, astronomers, etc. Oh, they were incredibly pagan. Very pagan. I'm sure they had all kinds of horoscopes and fortune tellers and crystal balls and all kinds of stuff there. Uh, Surely at least part of the reason that God deemed it such an exceedingly wicked city. But instead of sending them a sign from heaven, God sent a prophet so that they could hear the word of God and so that they could repent and believe. And as they did even in Jesus' generation, you know, people continue to seek science, folks. I'm under no illusion that, that this is going to stop. It hasn't. It was going on in Jesus' day. It, it's going to continue going on today and, and as, until he comes. Nothing in that's going to change. There are many claiming to be Christians who will have nothing to do with a church or a ministry or evangelistic outreach unless they're supplied with something visible to see because they want some kind of proof that God is there. 
And when signs and wonders are present, as verse 29 suggests, the crowds will increase. The crowds will continue to increase. I might propose that it's evidence of an immature generation, spiritually immature generation that longs for something to see rather than yearns for something to hear. Some might label it a superficial generation. Some might say, you know, they're a superstitious generation that seeks for a sign and a spectacle over the listening and the preaching to God's word. Um, still others say, might say that superficial, superstitious, immature, you know, those words are a little harsh. Just a little harsh, aren't they? And they may be a little harsh. But demanding sight rather than exercising faith in our God who remains unseen, it's not an insignificant error. It's not a small error, folks. So Jesus doesn't take it lightly. People demanding to see something before they will believe in him. That's no small thing. So he doesn't describe this generation as immature, superficial, or even carnal. Verse 29, he describes a generation who seeks for a sign as a wicked generation. His words, not mine. Let's pray.